Scripture this evening, our Old Testament text, first, Genesis chapter 26, verses, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 31. We're going to be using, uh, this as part of the sermon text, the New Testament text, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, that's going to factor into the sermon, as well as, well as a couple other texts that I'll bring up during the sermon. But first... Old Testament, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. This is God's very word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we bow before you. We ask your blessing on your word. We pray you'd open our hearts to receive it in faith. Pray that you would make us sensible to what you have to say to us in your word. Make us sensible to our sin in the light of your word, and make us sensible to the glories of our Savior in your word. This we pray for his dear sake. Amen. So, we're continuing this series in the Catechism, and tonight, question 10. Uh, how, does God, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, in his own image, uh, with dominion over the creatures. 
This is what we call the doctrine of man. It's what we believe about man, what, what man is. And this is such a crucial piece of our understanding, loved ones, of God's Word, of ourselves. Um, all, all doctrine matters. All, all the teaching, all the stuff we believe about God and, and about what His Word says, it all matters so immensely for our lives. Um, and, and probably you could say this about, about every doctrine you come across in His Word, but this one really matters. Right? What we believe about God, of course, that really matters. What we believe about Christ, that matters. But the doctrine of man, it seems, especially at our moment, in our, in our cultural uh, moment, this one really, really matters. Because so, there's just so much confusion about human identity, about, about what a human being is, about what my identity is. There's just so much rampant confusion about all of this. Our, our, our culture has this fundamental principle that um, to be a human being means that I decide for myself who I am. I identify myself and I define myself. And that's, uh, that's the message the world preaches over and over. It's everywhere. You express your individual self. You be your, yourself. So we need to respond to this. Uh, we need to be uh, ready to offer an apologetic, a defense, for why we believe what we believe about what a person is, what a human being is. Uh, but we also need to realize it's not just that we need to have an apologetic, a, a, a philosophical defense or a, you know, a biblical grounds for why we believe different from what the culture believes. We also need to be aware of this just because this isn't really anything new. This is what every human heart, since Adam and Eve, has been trying to do. To say, I will be who I will be without reference to God. I'll, I'll make my own identity. Thank you very much. I don't need God to tell me who I am. That's, that's, uh, that's the story of the human race, isn't it? Uh, and our sin at, at, at bottom. Right? Isn't that what Eve's doing there in the garden? She's saying, I will be what I will be and without reference to God. That's what Adam and Eve both do and that's what we're all tempted to say. I'll, I'll, I'll make my own identity. I'll be what I want to be and no one can tell me otherwise. Beloved ones, that really is the height of foolishness, isn't it? Um, we didn't create ourselves. We don't define ourselves. We don't give ourselves identity. God does. He's the creator. He says, this is who you are. This is who I've made you to be. That's what we're looking at tonight. What has God made us to be? Well, the wonderful thing is that Scripture holds out not a bleak view uh, of our human identity, not at first. It really holds out a glorious view of what God has made us to be. He's made us in His image. And that's what we're going to try to unpack tonight. Okay, so our roadmap for this evening as we work through this, we're going to be looking at three texts. Uh, Genesis 1, 26, especially through 28. Uh, you might want to have that open. You might want to slip a, a, a bookmark in there so you can flip back and forth to it. And then Ephesians 4, especially verse 24, but also a little bit of the context, um, which we, we read that one also. And then Col- another, another one is Colossians 3.10. Ephesians and Colossians are, are in many ways parallel letters. And Colossians 3.10 echoes very closely the words of Ephesians 4.24 with a slightly different, uh, slightly different nuance. So we'll be looking at Colossians 3.10 and a little bit around there too. So three texts, Genesis 1, 26, and context, Ephesians 4, 24, and context, Colossians 3, 10, and context. And I'm sure there's going to be other scriptures here too. 
Uh, but those are the three main ones. So we're going to draw on these three um, texts to look, at, to look at the image of God and man in three ways. So the, the, the first question is, well, how does God make man in the very beginning when everything's still good? What, what is man as created? Second is, what does the fall do to that? What happens when sin enters the picture? What's the image of God once Genesis 3 happens? It's the second question. And the third, what, what about when Christ comes? And you know, what does God do about the fall? So, so three questions to, to, that we'll work through. First, what's man as created? What's man as fallen? What's man as redeemed? Man as created, man as fallen, and then man as redeemed. All right, first of all, man as created. Let's uh, look here at Genesis 1.26 first. Uh, the verse, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here at the uh, end of chapter 1 of Genesis, you're at the crowning moment of the creation account. Um, um, we've had all these other uh, uh, wonderful instances of God creating, right? Days 1 through 5, he's been creating uh, light, he's been creating uh, seas, and he's been creating dry land, and he's been creating birds and uh, stars, galaxies, sun and the moon. And then finally, day 6, the crowning moment of creation, he makes man. It's the grand finale of his creating work. And then God says that he's going to do something really extraordinary here. This this creation of man breaks from the almost monotonous uh, uh, account of how God's creating everything else. And God pauses and, and really focuses on this. And he says that he's going to make man in his image. Something new is happening here. This hasn't been done with anything, any other part of God's creation. Yes, it's all reflecting his glory, but man is going to be his image. We, loved ones, you and I, bear God's image. You can, you can say we are, mankind is, the image of God. That's the way Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, he says, Man is the is the image and glory of God. This conveys a tremendous dignity, doesn't it, on every human being, right? Every single person, man, woman, boy, girl, we bear the stamp of God on us. It's like God took clay and pressed into it a, a replica of himself. He can't, he can't make us eternal creators, but he, he makes us, as a creature, yes, but replicating himself in us. We don't share his divine nature. We're not miniature gods, miniature versions of himself. But we reflect him in a wonderful and mysterious way. Bavink, Herman Bavink, a great Dutch theologian of the uh, turn of the 20th century, he, he writes this, Man does not simply bear or have the image of God. He is the image of God. From the doctrine that man has been created in the image of God flows the clear implication that the image extends to man in his entirety. Nothing in man is excluded from the image of God. 
All creatures reveal traces of God, but only man is the image of God. And he is that image totally in soul and body, in all faculties and powers, in all conditions and relationships. It's a wonderful and glorious and mysterious reality. And and so I think uh, we read these words in Genesis 1, God's made man in his image or his image. Um, What does it mean to be made like that? How are we bearing his image? Bobbing says the implications are this includes every aspect of who we are reflecting him. What does this mean, though? There's two ways to look at this um, that, might, that, are, that I think are helpful. Uh, they're not two separate images of God in us, but they're two aspects to the same image, right? Two facets, you could say, of the same diamond or two sides of the same coin. The first aspect of our image bearing is what we call ontological. That's just a big word that means that, that in our essence, we bear the image of God in, in, our, in our being. Um, uh, our essence is both body and soul, and in both body and soul, we reflect God, we bear his image. We see this in Genesis 1.27, right? God makes man male and female in their male and female bodies in his image. We see it in Genesis 2.7. God comes down, he condescends to form man from the dust of the earth, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. We see God there fashioning man, body and soul, in his own image. Man's body, then, is included in this. I think we sometimes forget that. Our bodies aren't disposable shells that God has no use for. All right, the uh, the image of God includes our bodies as well as our souls. Yes, Scripture puts a premium on the soul, but it includes the importance of the body. And so much so that this is part of our salvation too, that Christ is going to resurrect the bodies of believers like his own glorious body. Calvin agrees, he says, although the primary seed of the divine image was in the mind and heart or in the soul and its powers, yet there was no part of man not even the body itself, in which some sparks did not glow. And Bavink again, the body is not a prison, but a marvelous piece of art from the hand of God Almighty, and just as constitutive for the essence of humanity as the soul. It's so integrally and essentially a part of our humanity. Though violently torn from the body by sin, it will be reunited with it in the resurrection of the dead. Body and soul together. We bear God's image. What's this mean for us? Well, for one, it means man's whole being, body and soul, is defined by God, uh, is oriented towards God. Everything we are is in relation to Him. Uh, we, are, we are either uh, honoring Him or, or, or dishonoring Him. But we cannot do neither of those things. So that's, that's part of how we bear the image. It, it's our essence. It's, it's man's being, body and soul. He reflects God. But also there's this. There's not only the ontological aspect of our image, there's also the moral aspect of how we bear the image of God. If we are bearing God's image, reflecting his impress, if we're reflecting his glory, then it's going to make sense that we're going to reflect the glory of his character. Of his, of his attributes, of his righteousness, his holiness. And that's what we see 
That's what we see here. The, the Catechism highlights three attributes of God which are communicated to, his, uh, to, 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 to man. Uh, it says there's knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Why do the divines pick these three? Well, because they're right there in Scripture, right? Ephesians 4.24 and then Colossians 3.10. Uh, Colossians 3.10 says, You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is saying, Colossians, this is part of bearing God's image. Knowledge. Then over in Ephesians 4.24, he adds righteousness and holiness. What, what, what is knowledge? We'll start there. What, is, what does it mean to bear the image of God in knowledge? Well, I think Paul is not just referring to knowing God. I think he's also including the capacity to know him. Uh, that to, to be made in God's image is to be made knowing God. Not just knowing about him, but having a, 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 a knowledge, an, int, an intimate and, and personal knowledge, right? It's not just mere cognition, Charles Hodge says. It's full, accurate, living, practical knowledge. That's how we know him. That's how God makes man. Towards him, focused on him, ready to, ready to know him and worship him. That's man's posture as created. Knowing God. Ephesians 4.24 says there's also righteousness and holiness in this, in this image bearing that we have. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Same kind of language there, talking about being made in God's likeness. It talks about righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, what's that? Well, that's uh, living a right Life, living in accord with God's righteous character and his law. And then what's holiness? Well, that's uh, set-apartness. It's, it's being set apart for God, designated and devoted to God. It means to be unblemished by, other, uh, by, by, by sin and by evil and uncleanness. Um, God, see, what this tells us then is that as God made man, he makes him good, even as Genesis 1.31 says, that he makes man upright, holy, righteous, he doesn't create man in some kind of neutral space where man is, right, he can choose good or he can choose evil, but he's in some kind of neutral ground. God makes man 100% good, holy, righteous, knowing him. And loved ones, this is fundamental to human nature as God intended it to be. Man was created to be good. Righteous, knowing God, walking in righteousness, holy. It's quite a picture, isn't it? God makes man in his image. He makes man so that everything man is is supposed to reflect God's uh, glory in some way. He makes man as, and places him as a king over creation, as a steward under him uh, to, to, to steward uh, creation for his sake, to reflect his glory. This is what our human nature was designed to be. There's wonderful dignity for us here, isn't there? But, of course, as good as that picture is, it's not what we are living with now, is it? Flip on your phone, check the news, and it becomes pretty clear pretty quick. Um, but it's not just when we are looking at the news, is it? It's when we're also just looking at our own hearts. 
that we see there's something amiss with the image of God. So we're looking at our own families, our own, our own, our own sinful lives, and our own shortcomings. Something horrible has happened to that image of God. That's what we need to look at next, our second heading, man as fallen. What's happened, of course, you know, Genesis 3, uh, just one short chapter removed from Genesis 1, where God creates man in this glorious state, upright and holy, and knowing him, man, by some strange mystery, chooses evil and falls and uh, decides he doesn't want to be you know, just made in the image of God. He doesn't just want to be a steward over creation. He wants equality with God. He's going to grasp after that. He wants to be uh, king himself. He wants to be sovereign himself. He wants to define himself on his own terms, not by God's terms. And with Adam, we all fall. What happens to the image of God then? Is it gone? Lost? Still there? How do we understand the image of God, what it means to be a person, a human being, after sin comes in to the picture. Well, remember those two aspects of the image we talked about, right? The ontological, on the one hand, the, the being, the, uh, on the one hand, and then the uh, moral, on the other. The, the ontological image has to remain. Just thinking through it kind of with the, uh, the categories that Scripture gives us for this, we, 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 uh, we can't eradicate what God has made us as. Uh, uh, we'd have to cease completely to exist in order to not be image of God anymore. We see this in Genesis 9-7. Post-fall, after the fall, God says, Genesis 9-7, that uh, he has made man in his image. Man still bears the image of God, God says clearly in Genesis 9-7. Loved ones, that means that even after the fall, even in, uh, even in the worst sin that we see someone committing, that person is still made in the image of God. Every single person we encounter is made still in the image of God and still bears that image, that impress from Him. Everyone we see, people we like, people we don't, all of them made in His image. We've got to take this seriously, loved ones, and treat people with the standard of respect that is due them, not because of their conduct, but because of who God has made them as image bearers. That's, I mean, that's why Genesis 9-7, uh, in the context there where God is saying, man's made in my image, he's, he's talking about the death penalty. That's why he treats uh, violence against man so seriously. Because it's an attack on the very image of God. We need to treat each other with uh, far higher respect than we usually do. But do we say then that uh, the image of God remains unchanged from the fall? No, it remains. But um, the moral aspect of our image bearing, that is utterly shattered. It's just, it, is, it, is, it is gone. It's broken, shattered, disfigured. The ontological aspect, right, we're still made in God's image, but we are now a disgrace to that image. We've sinned, we've dragged that image in the mud of sin. We've gone from being a reflection like a mirror to to, to being shattered and, and being dirtied and covered in the filth of our sin. Paul describes 
human nature outside of Christ for us in Ephesians 4, 17-19. We saw this already. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see what Paul highlights there as he's talking about those who are not, uh, not in Christ, not believers. He says they don't know God. They don't have that aspect of being made in God's image, of knowing Him. Yes, they still deep down know He exists, as Paul will write elsewhere, but they're not acknowledging Him. They're not seeking fellowship with Him. And they're not righteous, they're not holy, they've they've lost that completely. Verse 19 there in Ephesians 4 says they've given themselves up to practice every kind of impurity. So after the fall, ontological aspect, yes, that part of the image stays, but our moral aspect of of our image-bearing is destroyed. We no longer bear the image of God as we should. And this makes for a... It's really... amplifies our sin, doesn't it? Um, Because we're still supposed to be reflecting God. It's not as though we're no longer supposed to reflect His glory. We're still made in His image, but like I said, we're dragging that through the mud of our sin. We're making a mockery of the image of God. We're abusing it. We want to use our bodies, which He made in His image for His glory to be righteous and holy, and we use our bodies for sin. We use our minds, which He made for His glory and to reflect His beauty and His goodness and His holiness. And we use our minds for ourselves. We have this tremendous privilege, this honor to be made in His image. And yet, we use it for ourselves. It just compounds our guilt. So what are we to do? Let's look now at the third heading. Man is redeemed. We've seen man is created. God makes man good in his image. Man falls, drags that image into, the, into sin. The image remains, but now it's, uh, now, now, now it's uh, covered in, in, in sin. And What does God do? That's what we see in the third heading. Man as redeemed. God doesn't say enough and throw the whole thing in the garbage. He could. Uh, no, he starts a new creation, a new humanity. He restores his image. How does he do this? Well, he sends Christ. He, 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 he sends Jesus Christ. And Christ comes, and in him, that image of God is perfectly restored. Everything that Adam was supposed to be, and that you and I are supposed to be, reflecting God's holiness and righteousness, Jesus is perfectly. Colossians, uh, Colossians 1.15 puts it like this. Jesus is the image of the glory of God. Jesus is the display perfectly of everything God is. And He is the one who perfectly reflects, as man was created to, perfectly reflects the glory and the righteousness of God. But God doesn't want just one man to do this. He wants a whole new creation, a new humanity. So he, he, he sends Christ that he might unite us to Christ and have thousands, millions remade in the image of God. 
So in Christ, we're given a new identity. That, that image that we took and we broke by our sin, it's remade in Christ. We get a new identity when we, have, when we put our faith in Christ. That image is restored by a glorious work of God. Our spiritual DNA is rewritten, as it were, to correct everything that went wrong in the fall so that we no longer bear the disfigured image um, that we have in Adam but the remade, glorious, perfect image of Jesus Christ. That's wonderful to think about, but if you're like me as you think about it, you, you might start to shake your head and wonder, what, can this really be true? Because if, if the image of God's been restored in me, and I have this new identity in Christ, why the sin still in my life? I, I act, and, and right. sometimes I do all right, but so, so much of the time I'm not acting the way that, that uh, someone restored in the image of God in righteousness and holiness should act, especially when we measure up against Matthew 5.48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the Scriptures are so clear on this, Right? Paul writes to the church in Colossae and Ephesus, these two texts we've, we've looked at a little bit. He says, You have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That's Colossians 3.10. He says, You've already put on the image of the new man, Christ, according to the image of him who created him. Paul says, Colossians, it already happened. You are made, remade in the image of God already. It's done and it can't be reversed. It doesn't depend on our knowledge or righteousness or our holiness. It depends on Christ's righteousness and holiness. And so this is the, this is the first point of application I want to stress, especially with you tonight, loved ones. Um, as you look at what God has made you to be and redeemed you to be, uh, don't, don't be discouraged looking at yourself. Don't define yourself by your sin. Don't see that as uh, your identity now. You are in Christ. Put all your hope and confidence in Him. My, uh, no, nothing about us in ourselves, in our sinful selves, defines us once we're in Christ. Paul, Paul's writing in Colossians 3.10 about how we, we have put on this image of Christ, this new man already. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. See what he's saying? None of those old identity markers matter now because you're in Christ. That's who you are. It's a glorious thing. But of course, this change of identity that's happened leads, or should lead, will lead, if it's legitimate, will lead to a change of life as well. When God has restored you in His image, you don't want to act the way you used to act. Change starts happening. Yes, often slow, but, but it's real. You don't want to profane His name anymore. You don't want to drag the image that He made you in through the mud anymore. You, you hunger and thirst after holiness when you've been remade in Christ. And that's, again, that's Paul's point in uh, Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. Both of those texts, as he's talking to the church about how they've been remade in the image of God, his point is, keep on in it. Go on in it. Be who God has made you and redeemed you to be. You've been remade in the image of Christ. Are you going to dishonor Him now? 
by what you do with your body, what you do with your mind and your heart? Are you going to drag Christ's name through the mud by your sin? You bear the image of Christ. Are you going to mock Him by going back to those old lusts and old sins and and all your old uh, rebellion against God? That's what Paul's saying. You've been remade in the image of God. You are in Christ and you've got to press on in holiness. So, loved ones, this, this bears on us, this bears on how we should be living our lives as those remade in the image of Christ. It also bears on how we treat others, doesn't it? This is a, another application that we could think through here. Uh, this, this, this matters for how we treat those inside the church. Uh, we, we, we spoke briefly earlier about how we need to see everyone as made in God's image, our neighbors, our co-workers, friends, etc., Uh, even those who aren't believers, they're made in the image of God. But now, as we're considering being remade in the image of God, this really should shape how we look at each other and think and act towards each other. Not only are are each of us made in God's image, but we've been redeemed in the image of Christ. And yes, it often does not look like it's progressed very far. We're like a building that's half-built. There's scaffolding all around it. Uh, There's a lot of construction debris around it. But God is remaking us in His image. Let's be patient with each other. Let's be patient and let's, uh, let's honor the fact that you and I are made in the image of God and being remade in the image of Christ. When, uh, when you don't click, when something isn't going well, when, when uh, someone's rubbing you the wrong way, remember, he, she, they're made in the image of God, they're remade in the image of Christ, and I need to honor them as I would honor Christ. And then one final thought, loved ones. As we close, we've been... Remade in the image of God in Christ. This is what we're talking about, right? We're, we're saying it's a work in progress. Um, we need to bear with each other, bear with ourselves, bear with each other, uh, be patient as God's work unfolds. But it's not always going to be like this, is it? The wonderful thing about this, uh, what, we're, what we're considering tonight, is that uh, it's going to be brought to completion. Over in 2 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Paul writes there about the image of Christ as a future thing. So he, he writes in Ephesians and Colossians about the image of God that we bear in Christ as a past thing. You've put him on. You've put on the image of God in Christ. Now act accordingly. In, in Second Corinthians, uh, excuse me, First Corinthians fifteen forty nine, he says this future, th- th- this image of Christ that you'll bear is a future thing. And what he says there is this: as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. As you've borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, the dead man, the broken image, body and soul, both, you will bear the image of the man of heaven. Wait a minute, Paul. I thought we already bore the image of the man of heaven. Yes, you do. Spiritually, physically, it's coming too. You'll be glorified like Christ. And, and in that, loved ones, we're not just brought back to Eden and the wonderful image of God that Adam bore. We're actually brought further. Adam was in a position where he could still sin. 
in Christ, when, when God's work is complete, when the scaffolding comes down and the work is done, we are going to bear in whole the image of Christ with a resurrected, glorified body and a soul that cannot sin. Image of God perfected in us forever so that we can have fellowship with Him. That's our hope. That's our hope, loved ones. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank You for the glorious privilege to be made in Your image and have fellowship and communion with You. Thank You for the glories of what You've done in the Gospel to save us from our sin. And we thank You for the wonderful hope that You hold out to us in Christ. And we have been... uh, restored in your image and we will be perfected in it in glory help us to be uh, hopeful in that help us to be um, uh, persevering in holiness and, and sanctification as we as we long for that day as we pray for jesus sake amen all right